Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with a focus on the actions against Russia's war crimes and the conservative leadership race. Cover that and more with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Despite some concerns from Ontario school boards, most of those boards are expected to follow the province's plan to lift mask mandates on March 21st. But are we moving too fast, too soon? And U.S. President Joe Biden seems to be in an impossible scenario, facing demands to do more for Ukraine, but he's also determined to avoid a third world war. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Another high-profile candidate officially now in the race to be the next federal leader of the Conservative Party. And uh, the Prime Minister is back home after his uh, trip over to Europe over the last uh, few days to talk about what's going on with Ukraine and the Russians. And, uh, well, getting kind of an eyes-on opinion as to what's going on. The Prime Minister says that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's callous disregard for human life is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, One of the visits uh, the Prime Minister made was in Poland uh, the day after a Russian attack on a maternity hospital in the port city of Maripol. Uh, Injured pregnant women left children buried in the rubble. He says Canada will help to ensure that Putin does face justice. It is very clear that he has made the choice to specifically target civilians now. Canada has joined the largest referral to the International Criminal Court in history and offered assistance to expedite this work. The world will continue to make Putin accountable for his war crimes. Prime Minister's back home right now and uh, I guess awaiting more discussions with other NATO leaders about what the next steps are going to be right now because it's uh, getting worse, not better, certainly in Ukraine. To uh, kick off the program today, as we do every Monday, I'm so pleased to welcome back Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Always a pleasure, Laurie. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. I'm always happy to be here. Let's talk a little bit now that the Prime Minister is back, kind of a, a recap as to what went on. I know the critics were there saying he should be back in Ottawa, but as you mentioned uh, the, the other day, uh, Parliament was not sitting, um, and he wanted to get a hands-on view. He did meet with some of the other NATO leaders and got a first-hand look. Is, uh, is, that, is it, in your opinion, was, is it a worthwhile trip? Is there something to be learned, something to be uh, used here in future negotiations and discussions about what's going on with Ukraine? I certainly don't think it did any harm, and I think um, it gave the Prime Minister an opportunity, as you say, to meet with other leaders, to be present there, uh, to get more of a first-hand understanding about what's going on and what's going to be necessary in the coming days and weeks. I think, um, you know, there was it, it's important, as, as, as we've said, you know, for a Prime Minister to be present as a global leader, not just at home, but to show, especially given, you know, as you say, how the situation is escalating. And if NATO is going to continue to respond, Canada might have to adjust its response, uh, depending on how things go forward. And so I think it was important for him to do that trust building and to be present and to, you know, kind of really immerse himself as someone who is a leader from another a country that's far away from Ukraine, but yet showing that that solidarity. And it, this is going to, again, like kind of move into the, the appearance um, from the U- Ukrainian president in our parliament tomorrow. So really interesting time. That'll be a very interesting thing to watch. Well, and visiting uh, Canadian troops that are already stationed over there, and, and at the time, I guess, I, you know, actually announcing a, an increase in those numbers as well. They keep talking about the, the no-fly zone. I know that, you know, it's it's the topic, I guess, and as you mentioned, I'm sure it's going to come up during uh, the, the Prime Minister's address, or the President's address, rather, uh, to the Canadian Parliament uh, this week. 
are, are they going to be forced into doing something about this? As you look at the numbers and if you look at the, the devastation, and as the Prime Minister mentioned in that clip, the clear indication that they're, they're going after human targets here, not just military yeah. targets. Nobody wants a third world war, but uh, there are voices right now that are saying, look, you got to do something and a foreign aid is just not enough. Yeah, I mean, like we've we and and other partners have tried to be really specifically targeted with the sanctions and focusing, you know, on Russian oligarchs who are going to be able to put pressure on Putin to stop this because we know that the sanctions are not going to be a deterrent for him. He's not going to calculate in his mind, okay, this is getting too expensive and I have to stop doing it. It's more to choke off his ability to be able to do it at all. And so if he's going to listen to pressure from anyone, it's going to be the people around him where he gets his you know, validity, justification, whatever, you know, the people, the those oligarchs who are giving him some sort of validity are going to put pressure on him to say, knock it off. Because, you know, that's, we are kind of using that economic sanction tool instead of escalating to something that could end up in a third world war. And as you say, nobody wants that. The, the, but there's, a, there are a ton of problems here. Like, and, Economic sanctions are going to take a long time to to have any, the kind of effect that we're looking for. Meanwhile, this is not what Russia expected on the ground at all. And so given the situation now, given that Russian troops are dying, we can see problems in terms of the implementation of their strategy, tanks running out of gas, soldiers are hungry, like, the you know, this is a mess for him. And so now what does he do from here? Is he going to back down somehow? That's not the Putin we know, is he going to escalate instead? And if he does, that will put a lot more pressure on NATO, including Canada, to go along with what Ukraine has been asking for, which is a no-fly zone. But again, we know that's, you know, it's almost like Russia's you know, wanting us to push that. He's wanting us to pull that trigger. And so then that gives them the space they need to react in a way that's more, um, you know, that that's, that's escalated on the military side. The, the concern by all the NATO leaders, not just the prime minister, is is that, you know, if we do something like that, that's going to provoke Putin to respond. And as you say, we could get, get into a nuclear conflict. Uh, World War III is the phrase that keeps getting bandied about. But uh, there's also a line of thinking that I heard over some of the, the political shows on Sunday morning that, that he may do that anyway. Uh, it, as you yeah. mentioned, this is not going the way he wanted. He thought this was going to be over by now, clearly. Uh, you know, the military strategy and, and the implementation of whatever strategy that is is not working to the extent that they thought it would. Does he ramp it up on his own and simply say, look, it, I, I, I got to get this over with. This can't go on forever and ever. Uh, and there's yes. always a concern. Uh, and I know he's talked about if you do a no-fly zone, that's a provocation. Uh, the supply chain now is a provocation. Uh, but I, I'm going to flip it around and ask you the inverse of this. If he does something like that, there's some chance uh, and some rumors over the weekend, I'm sure you heard, that he may actually start employing chemical weapons. Is that a line crossed that NATO says, okay, enough is enough? Oh, I absolutely think so. And then there's the other complicating piece, which is his disinformation campaign. And so yeah. using the kind of threats that this is where they're headed and they're, you know, this this is the sort of warfare that he's willing to engage in. And then, you know, others trying to disprove that disinformation and say, no, no, you know, like that's that's not what's going on. But he's he wants to ramp up the fear. He wants to ramp up the, you know, perhaps uh, sense that this some sort of Russian takeover in Ukraine is inevitable. And so people should give in to that. But I think you're right. Like there's a reason to be concerned concerned that because he's not winning in the streets and he didn't calculate this, he's got to win somewhere. And so he'll change the game to something that he thinks he can win. And so if that happens, that's the escalation that he's looking for, whether there's any problem, you know, what he would think is provocation from NATO at all. And so whether we can stop any of that is going to be, you know, another, another part of it. 
I know everybody's talked about the fear of, of the provocation in a world war. Uh, not everybody's on that page, of course. I don't know if you saw John Bolton over the weekend. I think it was on the ABC on Stephanopoulos' show. Uh, and uh, John, John Bolton, of course, everybody knows. He's been in every Republican administration, I think, since Reagan. And mm. he kind of reminds me of John Wayne with both guns in his hand, shooting, <laughs> running down the prairies in true grit. You know, that's, that's the kind of guy he is. Uh, but he says that go ahead and do this. Putin wouldn't dare use nuclear weapons. I'm hoping that's not the, the, the mindset of, of the administration down there. It certainly isn't Joe Biden's mindset. But, uh, you know, are, are we making more out of this than can be? Or, or it, it seems to me as if, you know, maybe the kindest thing you can say about Putin right now, he's unpredictable. He's unpredictable. Uh, he's, you know, very power hungry. He's very vain. He's not terribly rational. He, I don't think he cares in some ways, like what what the rest of the world thinks about him. And I think in this case, um, yeah, like he's he's gotten into a situation where that he didn't expect and his motivations for doing it with respect to his own power, with respect to expanding his own control in the world and rebuilding some version of the Soviet Union. Those are things that are are, you know, possibly motivating him. But what our response is going to have to be like this, this is a test of NATO. This is a test of the partnership. This is a test of whether um you know, there's going to be tons of, of of analysis of this for years around whether there was more that we could have been done been doing in advance of this that would have prevented it. But at this point, I mean, it's I think everybody is going to be in a regroup stage at this point because now we're several weeks in and you're just kind of wondering, okay, is he gonna is he gonna change the channel by ramping this up? Is there any possibility that that there's a de-escalation? Is there a role for China here? Like what's gonna happen next? And, and so much debate going on, and, and I, I know we probably said this last week, but this is a pivotal week. We just, one misstep here, and, and you know, I know that, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand has condemned Putin as a war criminal. Uh, Melanie Jolie, uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister, made a similar tweet uh, just a couple of minutes ago, as a matter of fact. And I know Zelensky's talked about this, too. I, I don't know if you saw the interview he did on Sky News a couple of days ago, uh, that he essentially said, you're going to do this. You're, you're going to institute a no-fly zone. Uh, simply because of what he's doing and continues to do. But he says, how many more of our people are going to die until you do this? It's a rather chilling thought, uh, but it seems to be the way things are rolling out. Well, that's it. And that, and I completely like that, that point really resonates. And, you know, you have, we have to think about the timing of things and that's what it's really about. Like there's, you know, I, I read it same as everybody else, right? Like I read as much as I can about this. And there's a sense that, you know, countries have playbooks. There are ways that that countries tend to go about these sorts of things. And Russia's playbook is not working for them. And so there's a question of, okay, you know, are other countries going to then revisit what we normally do? Is Canada, and we're, I mean, just to kind of like look back to the domestic situation, we're going to be looking at a budget sometime soon. Is this going to be an opportunity for Canada to start to build up, you know, where we haven't been building up for a while? Is there a sense that there is such a shift in the global order at this point that Canada is going to have to change the way it has in, has been engaging on the global scene, that we're not just the diplomat, we're not just the peacekeeper, we actually, you know, kind of roll the dice a bit more on the military side. I wonder how much of an effect Zelensky's appearance tomorrow is going to have on people. When he speaks directly to Canada's parliament, and says, we need the no-fly zone because we're doing this in the streets. We just can't handle it from the sky. Like, that's going to be a very powerful message. Let's uh, pivot if we could. I've got a couple of minutes left. Now. I wanted to get your read on uh, what happened over the weekend with the conservative leadership race. One guy's in, one guy's out. Uh, Patrick Brown, I guess to the surprise of no one, uh, mm. made his candidacy official yesterday. Uh, Peter McKay says he's not going to run. Surprised by either one of those? 
not at all. I think um, like Peter, that would have been a really tough turnaround, I think, for Peter McKay. And as he's pointed out, he's still paying off the debt from the last time. And it would be like in some ways, some people have been suggested that he run for something so that he's able to collect money to pay off the debt for the last thing, which would have been a truly hellish experience. And so I think, no, he's he's out. Um, and I don't know that he's like, still a young guy. I don't know if he's out for the rest of his life, but he's not going to do it now. Patrick Brown, I think, was just sort of, you know, perhaps waiting for... Charay's announcement to go by and and you know kind of wait till till he's got the airwaves kind of thing and then he announced on Sunday he's going to be a very interesting candidate to watch I mean we know how much name recognition he has in Ontario and he's got six months to get let the rest of the country you know get to know him and what he stands for and what he want to do with the party it'll be very interesting to see the dynamic between Polyev and Brown Polyev's already gone on the attack and obviously he has with Charay too but it strikes me that there's that the dynamic between Charay and Brown being you know, they're not the same person, but there's, you know, there's something happening there where this could be an interesting strategy around playing the ballot so that if Polyev doesn't win it on the first ballot, it's going to really be hard for him to win on subsequent ballots because people who put Brown first are going to put Sheree second and vice versa. So you see a kind of growth and a solidification of support on the progressive slash centrist side, as opposed to on the social conservative side, which is what we've been used to see, seeing over the last couple of leadership races. Well, that's what happened the uh, year they eventually elected uh, Andrew Shear, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, Bernier was supposed to be the winner. He was the uh, the odds-on favorite, but with each subsequent ballot, you figure he's, it's not going to happen. He's just not going to get over the hump, and and eventually didn't. Uh, would you classify Brown as a moderate necessarily? I mean, because I, I, I was shocked, you know, when he was the leader of the Ontario Conservative Party, because uh, he had a reputation as a federal MP as as a, you know very much in the in the the, the path of, of Stephen Harper, uh, social you know policies and things of this nature. He came across as a as a potential candidate anyway. He almost became premier. Many will argue as more of a moderate. I mean, the, the platform he put out there included a carbon tax and included mm-hmm. money into into childcare, a number of different things that before that conservatives just weren't talking about. D- d- is he bold enough to actually start to, to to say this is the kind of conservative I am? It's it's interesting. I agree with you. I would absolutely put him in a kind of in, on the moderate part of the ideological spectrum. And, you know, because of things like his support for carbon tax, because of his support for social programs, I expect that he will line up there. And he's already talking about growing the party and, you know, again, defending his conservative credentials while he he wants to appeal, he says, to people who've never voted conservative before. And so, like, that's going to be a really interesting dynamic in the race because it lasts so long. Right. Like he's got three minutes to sign. I'm sorry, three months, to three minutes, three months to sign people up and then three months to court the people who have signed up. And so I think the key question before people is, do you want to grow the party or do you want the party to kind of be what it is now? Like Polyev wants the party to be what it is now because he'd probably win that way and he'd have some shot in hell of winning on the first ballot. But I think the longer this goes, the more complex it gets. And even something like Patrick Brown has come out against Bill 21. Other conservative, like including Aaron O'Toole, like they kind of wanted to dance around that and not not kind of take a clear position on that. So even something like that, if he really puts his cards down and says, here's what I want to do, who's with me? You know, that's that could be a, a really interesting dynamic in a race with like five candidates in it. Well, it's uh, just getting started, as you mentioned. A lot more to come on that, including Mr. Brown's background that I'm sure is going to come up from time to time. True story. Laurie, yeah. always a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for this. Uh, have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Sounds like a plan. 
Thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Still a, a lot of feedback and pushback about the announcement last week by the uh, the Ford government. Actually, specifically, it was uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, the chief medical officer, uh, who made the announcement. The premier was uh, in another location uh, making some other announcement. Anyway, it, it had to do with masking. And and as uh, Dr. Moore told us, as of March 21st, uh, which is when, by the way, kids go back to school after the March break, which they're in now, he says no more masks in schools. And uh, a number of boards of education have actually said, no, I, I don't think so. It's, it's not quite time. And uh, well, the, apparently uh, the Minister of Education, Mr. Lecce, and of course the Premier himself got pretty upset about this. And the Premier was asked the other day what he would say to uh, immunocompromised people that are concerned about dropping masks. Let me be very clear to the, the school boards. They aren't medical experts. Uh, the chief medical officer is the expert. And he is... Uh, he is uh, and it has done his due diligence. He's consulted with other uh, medical officers, be it Dr. DeVilla or Dr. Etches in Ottawa. He doesn't make these decisions lately. Uh, but our expectations to the school boards, uh, and to the exception of the parents that want their kids to put masks on, follow the direction of the chief medical officer, plain and simple. That's what we expect, and uh, hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll do that. A lot of people were, I think, surprised by the comments there. I'm not necessarily, I, I guess, assuming that, uh, that what Dr. Moore said last week was an edict, but it was just a change in policy. Karen Brown is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, uh, who are deeply involved in this issue, as you might expect. She joins us here at the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Karen, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing well, Bill. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you something, Karen, right up front. Uh, when you heard Dr. Moore's uh, announcement, uh, which basically said as of, of next Monday, uh, the mask mandate is no longer necessary, did you take that as, a, as an edict, as an order, that's something that you had to comply with? Uh, we, we took it as, as good, you know, direction, suggestion, highly <laughs> encouraged. Uh, but Dr. Dr. Moore, um, I don't think it, in lifting not just masking, but all the other things really understands the impl- implication in a school environment. Uh, it might be great out there in other settings, uh, but in a school, it has uh, uh, great implications. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, the pushback from uh, school boards in regards to let's slow this down. Uh, when you're removing masking and physical distancing and cohorting, and we have unvaccinated children, uh, and you haven't st- still sent all those HEPA filters, those are a lot of safeguards that are being removed. Uh, and the system is already in chaos. We're already stressed uh, to have educators and teachers filling in the gaps. Uh, so I, I think their their concerns are, are legitimate. Well, I want to push back a little bit on something the Premier just said in the clip we played there a second ago uh, that said that, you know, Dr. Moore is the medical expert and he, he it's his decision. I've talked to other medical experts, and I'm sure you have over the last little while. Dr. Peter Uni from the Ontario Science Table was on our show the next morning. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who's, uh, of course, uh, been a regular on this program and many other programs, uh, the Children's Health Network, which includes Sick Kids Hospital and McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, have all said, no, don't do it yet. It's not time. We don't have enough data. Uh, those are the medical experts that apparently the government doesn't want to listen to. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's our concern, that they're, they're picking and choosing what's, um, you know, what's good for them. And, and I'm hoping or hoping that these decisions aren't um, being politically motivated. They're not being, uh, you know, the drive is not to have COVID disappear before a pending June election. Uh, Dr. Moore mysteriously is no longer going to be 
um, doing any media interviews. It's it's done. There's no more reporting on COVID. So let's let's lift the masking. Let everything appear uh, normal. And, and, you know, we don't have to discuss this and just focus on election. So we're quite concerned. COVID is real. Uh, it's real in schools. Schools are crowded. We have crowded classrooms. Dr. Moore says he's not going to be in places where there are crowds. Uh, schools are crowded. He's not going to be on the TTC without his mask on. Uh, public, uh, the transit system for our, our, our students, or the, the busing system, uh, kids need to have their mask on there too. So we're, we're quite concerned that there's things that he's not going to be doing is not... Um, is going to be impacting our students. They're going to be expected to be uh, in these classrooms and especially elementary students. We have a large proportion of elementary students who are uh, under the age of five or kindergarten students who aren't, aren't eligible for vaccines. And then we have a huge population between the five and 11. There's only 55% of them that are vaccinated. So that's a low level of vaccines, uh, putting our members at risk, putting students in the community at risk and really jeopardizing uh, the consistency uh, in the classroom, the stability that parents want. We know uh, after breaks, there's there's a there's a spike. There tends to be a spike, especially during March break. People are going to be traveling, socializing, interacting. Uh, I'm not sure why the rush. Let's delay a bit, give it some more time, look at the trends, and and then we can move forward. Uh, I got a pretty good idea why the rush. <laughs> Let's face it. There's an election the first week of June, and and I I'm thinking that the premier and his and his uh, his cabinet would just love to have COVID off the table by then. Uh, it's not going to be. Uh, even Dr. Moore admitted that. Uh, and, and you know, when he was talking about the, the policy decision, I'm sure you watched it as it was happening as we did, Karen. Dr. Moore himself said that, well, we're going to continue to track this and get test results. No, they're not. Uh, the testing, as you mentioned, is very arbitrary and almost non-existent in some environments right now. They're never going to get a real handle on what's going on in the community uh, because they just don't do enough testing. And I don't see any indication that they're going to ramp it up. Uh, absolutely. There's, there's, there's no testing going on in, uh, in, in, in schools. There's no tracking of the cases. So we really actually don't know the numbers. We don't know uh, what case counts are. We're not able to get that reporting information. And that's a real concern because there's going to be further disruptions in person le learning. It's going to have a negative impact on the safety of our students, on their families. And, you know, Ontario schools, really, we deserve that stability that we need. Uh, this, this government, you know, we've seen over the last few years has really been making the uh, decisions that have not been putting um, the health and safety of, of Ontarians as, as at the forefront of what they're doing. And we're really hoping that they're relying on public health uh, issues. As you said, there is an election coming and it seems that they, they want to have this disappeared. They don't want to be held accountable to it. Uh, they don't want to discuss it, but it's real. Our members are dealing with it. Parents are dealing with students. I'm hearing about student protests walking out on March 21st. They're concerned. They have realized that high school students and that, you know, this government is not putting their health and safety first. So there are a lot of people who are watching and are very concerned uh, about what's motivating uh, these decisions. I, I just want to clarify for our listeners as well, because uh, as I say, when I had a conversation with Dr. Uni the next day, he's he's not saying don't do this ever and and you know don't wait till he's saying give me two more weeks to, to collect more data uh to get a better picture as to what's going on that's all they're asking for here and i, I can't uh, well I, I guess i sort of can understand why they the government seems to be so hard-headed about this digging their heels in I've been talking to a friend of mine who's a teacher a couple of days ago the karen i just wanted to get your view on this 
he speculated. He says, you know, there was a lot of pushback on a lot of other things the premier's done during COVID. And maybe he's just got his back up right now and says, this is what it's going to be come hell or high water. And he said, this guy was trying to be as arbitrary as he could. He says, we're not trying to embarrass the premier. We're trying to look after our kids. And, and I figure that's a pretty practical way of looking at this. Absolutely. And, and, and you, that's so correct, Bill. No one is saying not, not to lift uh, the mask mandate. Uh, educators want to see the beautiful smile of their students. And likewise, they want to see uh, the smiles of their teachers and their educators. But we're seeing, give it some, give it some time. Why the delay? Why can't you have the delay? Why can't have boards have the flexibility? We're hearing that HEPA filters are still on the way. So filtration issues are still a concern uh, for, for school boards. Uh, the vaccination rates are still a concern. You're going to be, you remove cohort and you're going to be mixing all these kids in together. That's a concern. So why not do layers, layer these, these um, removal of these layers a little bit at a time. And I think that's what school boards are saying. They're saying, we're going to have to deal uh, with the with the impact of staffing shortage. The staff is going to be exposed to this. We already have emergency supplies coming in. It's going to add more chaos. They're not saying, as you said, never, you know, let's just drag this on forever. Absolutely not. Everyone wants to be out of it. But when we're seeing um, decisions that appear to be influenced by the politics of a fast approaching election, uh, we're, we're concerned. We have had other breaks when we've had the, the winter break and the March break in the past. We have delayed, um, kind of looked at the winter break. We delayed returning because we knew about the spikes. So those spikes are still con con continuing. And, um, you know, we need to be questioning the premier. Why, why, why not give the flexibility? Like boards are asking for an additional two weeks, like you said. Why not give that time? Why not to see the trends, to protect the, the, the stability in the school? Parents want to be in-person learning until June. Give them the opportunity. Uh, we, I understand the premier has been invited to classrooms. I think he needs to visit a few schools to see what the reality is and sit at lunchtime with all these you know, 40, 50 kids in a lunchroom and, or more uh, with their mask off and to be roaming around that environment and see how safe he feels uh, right after the break. I don't think so. So let's give us the time we need and so we can get the province moving and get the schools moving in the direction that everyone wants. Were you surprised that that, that both Minister Lecce and the Premier have been so strident about this? I, I got to tell you, my personal reaction, I, I, I would have thought when boards started raising concerns, the response probably could have been and should have been, well, if that's how you feel to, to make it more secure, okay, that, that's fine. You know, but, the, you know, and when you're ready, you can do this. Instead, he just dug his heels in and said, and I, I gave you guys an order. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's that really uh, lends to the conversation about it being really politically influenced, as opposed to what's best for the students of Ontario. Uh, the school boards, they know the climate they're working, they know the staffing levels, they probably have a, a sense of, you know, the interruptions, how many kids are in and out, how many are switching from in person to online, the stability in the system, and to really add this layer so quickly, adds another layer of stability that they're managing not the premier or the minister of education. And they're saying, hey, give us the opportunity to do this well. I'm not sure why they're not doing that, but I think we all have a pretty good, uh, you know, good good feeling why that is. And, and if they really cared, they'd say, great, take that additional time, have that safety mechanism, reassure parents and move on after that. We're not getting that message because they want this pandemic to be appear to be over for political reasons, and that's not good. It's not good for Ontarians, and we're, we're very disappointed. 
Well, one of the things that surprised me about the announcement from Dr. Moore, though, last week was, was like you say, this is a one-size-fits-all. And it was just a week or so before that that when the Premier and Dr. Moore were talking about their, their methodology to get out of this, you know, we're going to do this on this date and lift this on that, yada, yada, yada. They said you can't have one-size-fits-all. It may change from region to region. Uh, as you know, Karen, uh, the Hamilton Board of Education uh, has said they're not going to do this. Uh, Hamilton has, over the last two or three waves, I guess, of this pandemic, had higher than the provincial average numbers of, of cases in schools. Why shouldn't they be cautious? Uh, the Toronto Board, both the public and Catholic Board, are in the same situation. They said, look, we can't just pretend it never happened. We're not ready for this yet. They're not listening. They're hearing, I guess, but they're not listening to them. Yeah, and what we're seeing here is really a different set of rules um, that are existing in, in, in schools. Uh, we have similar high-risk settings outside of the schools, and schools need to be, be treated as a high-risk settings. And so those who are engaged in, in, in the school system should have the ability to do whatever is, is needed to, to, to protect and to safeguard. And that is a concern. That's, that's not happening, and it, and it needs to be. Uh, and that's a, a reality that the, the Premier and the, the Minister of Education don't want to don't want to face don't want to confront that not only are school boards uh, not feeling uh, safe right now um, and want to have a delay like Hamilton because of the case counts and getting things under control that the fact that this government that the Minister of Education is offering online learning for an additional year uh, really says to parents we're not confident uh, that this is over uh, and we're not we're not confident that you know, the, the, the safety mechanisms are there for in-person learning. So if it was, in-person learning would continue. You wouldn't have the option of online learning. So they're really giving mixed messages. They're saying, oh, well, you know, September you could have online learning because you have concerns. However, because you want to delay an implementation of masking for two weeks, oh, you can't do that. Uh, so, the you know, we're, we, we, we question the, the motives. Of, of this of this government pushing online learning and I'm, I'm tying in some connections because parents really need to, to see that uh, you're saying you know you're going to provide this for the for the future but what you're really trying to do is, is pilot privatization and private and outsource uh, some of these online learning uh, school core course offerings which they shouldn't be doing if schools are safe invest in on in, in person learning put all the resources that they need, the resources the boards have been asking for so that parents can uh, keep their kids in person, we can return to in-person. And this is part of that same mantra. Boards are saying, ah, you know, we need some more time. So why are you listening to that, but you're not listening here, which is like an immediate concern, an immediate need. You're looking at a year later for online learning, but here they're saying we have an immediate need, we have an immediate concern, and you're failing to address it because this government has its own immediate need to push uh, in regards to really um, what the provincial action is coming up and that they don't want to even discuss COVID, which is shame on this government. Uh, this is real. Parents are dealing with it. Educators are dealing with it. They need to uh, make sure that there's a priority and support school boards who want to do what they can do for parents so that we can have consistency until June, stability in the system. They don't want to be managing this chaos. It's worth uh, noting, too, by the way, that for our listeners, that you, of course, uh, your organization, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, uh, have uh, have been expressed about what's going on here, as have others. But And I know the government would love to, to characterize this as, uh, there go those teachers again, pushing back against the government. But it's not just teachers. It's 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 
It's parents groups that have spoken up about this. It's medical experts, the ones who are supposed to be offering advice and, and you know, some way to, to get out of this thing to the, the government. And oftentimes that advice has been ignored. Uh, there's a real pushback here. Are you concerned about the government's attitude here? I mean, how far is this going to go confrontation-wise? I mean, uh, you know, are you, I, I can't see your organization, a number of other groups, or even parents groups that have spoken out, simply say, oh, okay, then we'll, we'll go without them. Then uh, I guess you guys know better. That's not going to happen. But is the government going to back off on this, or is this going to get worse than it is already? Well, we're not sure what the government's going to do, but if they were wise, they would have uh, really respect uh, that boards want flexibility and to give that that. What they're saying is we want to ensure the safety of our students. And I'm not sure why any government would push back against that. They're not saying that we're not going to remove re uh, masking. They're just saying, give us some additional time so that we can be ready, equipped and prepared to uh, to do that. Um, we'll, we, we will continue to highlight the concerns, highlight the decisions that this government is making and whether they're making uh, the necessary investments to make students and educators, education workers feel safe. Right now, boards are saying the investments that they have made is not enough. We need some more time. And that includes giving a delay so that we can see the trends and that boards can appropriately do what they need to do to keep students in, to keep learning going on. Parents should be concerned. Uh, if you're a, a parent with an elementary student uh, in grades uh, who are between five and, and, and 11, they should be concerned. We need the, the government needs to be doing some more education around the safety of vaccines. So parents have that choice and that option. Vaccine rate continues to be low uh, and children do transmit. No, the hospitalization rates aren't high, but they do transmit COVID. Our members could be exposed. Our kindergarten teachers and our education workers our, our early childhood education workers are working with a population of students who will be unmasked and unvaccinated. That is a concern and exposure. Uh, we need to be able to, we're glad that they're going to have the option to continue to wear their mask uh, after this, hopefully more boards will take on at that delay uh, in the in the two weeks. It's a win-win for Ontario. It's a win-win for education. It's a win-win for families to give them, we hear that, you know, they were touting uh choice and flexibility. This gives um, the school boards the option to make parents uh, feel safe. And I'm not sure why we would push against additional safety measures. This is an additional safety measures. A two-week delay is an additional safety measure. Why is this government, why is the Minister of Education pushing against additional safety measures? Uh, parents are asking those questions. It makes no sense. Uh, they need to continue to uh, emphasize what is the what's what's driving these decisions and it's not uh the care and concern of our student for our students well uh the ball's in their court and uh, uh, it's a week today that uh, everybody goes back to school and we'll just see what the, the situation is by then and how the government's going to respond karen as always thank you so much for the time uh, enjoy the rest of your week and i'm sure we'll talk about this down the road hey, thank you bill take care Take care. Karen Brown, who is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are keeping eye on what's going on in Ukraine, certainly, and uh, the, well, impact that could happen with just about any political decision. We all know about the sanctions, the impact that's having, uh, the threat of retaliation. In fact, if NATO does something that uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't like, 
which uh, may well have happened on the weekend. China is now responding to U.S. claims that Russia has actually asked Beijing for military support for its invasion of Ukraine. Chinese Foreign Minister Spokesman Zhao Dijian, speaking through a translator, calls it disinformation. The U.S. has been constantly spreading disinformation against China. This is malicious. China's position on the Ukraine issue is consistent and clear. We have always been playing a constructive role in promoting peace talks. Uh, disinformation. It's interesting. Well, you know the old phrase that uh, in war, the first casualty is always truth. Uh, there's been a lot going on here, and, and we've seen that with uh, some of the communiques from uh, the Russians uh, about what's happening in Ukraine, not just about casualties, but about their intentions. And uh, it's it's been very disheartening, I guess, to hear this sort of thing. And, and knowing, by the way, that these stories that they're making up, uh, this fiction that they're making up, is basically what's being fed to the Russian people. Uh, you know, they did pass a law, as we mentioned in this program a week or so ago, that that anybody who is, uh, go, first of all, uh, who is protesting government action in in Russia, or anybody who broadcasts as a journalist uh, what they consider to be misinformation, in other words, telling the real story about what's happening in Ukraine, you're going to jail for at least 15 years, at least. So that certainly is having the influence on what's going on. But there's a great deal of pressure on the U.S. administration about what happens next now. We know about the sanctions, and we're, I know, being told that you know they're, they're going to target the oligarchs and they're going to target Putin himself. But Putin keeps coming out and, and revising almost what NATO can and cannot do in this situation, saying if you cross this line, uh, there could be retaliation, and it may be nuclear retaliation. Uh, the Biden administration has already said they don't want to start a World War III, but you know what other options do they have at this stage? I want to bring uh, Jennifer Johnson into the conversation. Jennifer, of course, is Washington correspondent uh, for Global News. Uh, Jennifer, great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. The, the Biden administration, uh, the president's got a feeling, I think I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't, you know, in what's going on next. I mean, he's been pretty adamant that, look, at, there's, he doesn't want to do the no-fly zone. He doesn't want to do anything to really cross the lines that Putin keeps drawing in the sand here. Uh, is he getting any pressure from, from the folks up on the Hill about exactly what should happen, his next steps? Well, he's definitely getting a lot of pressure. Forty Republican senators sent him a letter over the weekend begging him to make this MiG fighter jet deal with Poland go through, um, just for background information. So the United States had an agreement with Poland to provide, that Poland would provide Ukraine with this old Soviet-made MiG fighter jets. And in in return, the United States would send or, or sell um, fighter jets to Poland, American-made fighter jets. Poland then came out and said, uh, we want those jets to be delivered through Ramstein Air Force Base, which is a U.S. base in Germany, and then go to Ukraine. And then the United States pulled out of that. The Biden administration pulled out of that because it looked like the U.S. was, in fact, supplying Ukraine with military jets. And as said before, it's not going to directly do that. And so the Republican senators want the Biden, Biden administration to make that happen, to get those jets in the air, get them to Ukraine to help Ukraine fight Russia from the air. Uh, but so far, the Biden administration is not is not moving on that. Interesting twist to that, too, uh, Jennifer. I was mentioning earlier in the program, watching all the Sunday morning politics shows, of course, to try to get a read on what's happening. And uh, John Bolton was on there. And of course, we know John Bolton has been involved in, I think, every Republican nomin- administration since Reagan. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, you know, famous, I guess he's the kind of shoots first, ask questions later sort of a guy, uh, even when he was the U.S. ambassador for one of the Bushes. 
he says, call his bluff. He's basically saying there's no way Putin's going to start a war if you start a no-fly zone, <laughs> which I guess that's the sort of uh, thing you'd expect to hear from a John Bolton. Uh, is that gaining any traction? Are people basically pressuring the president right now to say, look, he's not going to do that? I think there's plenty of pressure, and I think the president is not going to do it. He's not taking that gamble that if the United States uh, seemingly enters into this war, that Vladimir Putin won't start launching nuclear attacks, nuclear missiles. Uh, The administration is very concerned about that, and I think they're probably backed by intelligence. And, you know, it's certainly not the president's decision himself. He's got a lot of... um, uh, military and national security advisors surrounding him. And so, you know, he is adamant he is not going to do that. And they are very concerned that Vladimir Putin is going to launch nuclear attacks. It's not only a concern for the United States, the attacks would most likely happen to the NATO allies first. I mean, it, you know, it's going to happen to Europe first. And Germany just announced it's not going to provide any more military assistance to Ukraine. So clearly they're nervous. That country of all countries given, you know, what happened in World War II. But, you know, there's a lot of concern that this could end up at, you know, as World War III, a nuclear war. Your, your point's well taken. I mean, if, if, in fact, Putin decides to make that step, the missiles aren't going to go to Washington or New York City. They, they're going to go to, to, you know, to Berlin and Hamburg and, and God knows where. I mean, he's going to hit easier right. targets, the closer targets first. Uh, so they're going to get dragged into it one way or the other. And we're hoping it doesn't come to that. But it's, it's got to be disconcerting, I would think, though, Jennifer, for you know, the administration to know that, as some of the critics have suggested, that look at Biden's allowing Putin to call the, the rules of the game here. You can't do that. And if you do that, I'm going to push the button. You know, you can't do the no-fly zone. You can't sell jets. Uh, we're going to break up the supply chain because that's an act of war, too. You know, what do you do in a situation like that? Do you, do you call his bluff and simply say, we're going to continue to do this? Maybe not start anything new, but at least continue to do what they're doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the Biden administration, it, it's like you said, damned if they do and damned if they don't, because, I mean, this is certainly killing the president in terms of his poll numbers. It's going to kill the Democrats in the midterm elections. Um, but it's also just, you know, upsetting for, I'm sure, for them personally, just to watch what's happening to Ukraine and kind of be caught in this situation where if we do this, could this happen? Or do we just try to keep negotiating? I mean, the National Security Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is on his way to Rome to meet with the Chinese counterpart to try to, you know, back-end negotiations with Russia. Um, but, you know, they, they, you know, like you said, this is, what do we do? What do we do now? And so the president keeps ramping up economic sanctions, hoping that the billionaire backers of Putin will squeeze him and say, you know, knock it off. We're losing billions of dollars every day, which they are. Um, the economy is being crushed, but Putin doesn't really listen to a lot of people. So we'll see what happens. What about the China situation? The clip we just played before you joined us there about the accusation that the Russians have actually asked for military assistance from the Chinese government uh, for their, uh, their 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 campaign in, in Ukraine. There's a lot of evidence uh, from U.S. intelligence, I guess, Jennifer, over the last couple of weeks now that this has been going on, uh, that China's kind of got Russia's back on a lot of this stuff, you know, with the sanctions. I mean, you know, the, the banking system, you got booted out and China said, don't worry, we got you covered on that. The credit cards that are, have all been, you know, companies that have jumped in here about Russian involvement. And China says, well, we've got a system here too. Uh, we already know that they've had some discussions about another pipeline between the two countries. Uh, is there a frustration in Washington right now? I, I, Biden's always pointed to China as the, as the number one global problem. 
Uh, certainly, they're if they're number one, they're one A right now because he's more concerned about what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. But it, it looks like things are starting to develop on two fronts here. Well, that's right. So the news overnight was that uh, Russia is asking China for military and financial help. Now, Russia is suffering very heavy losses in terms of its military equipment and its personnel fighting Ukraine. It's been a much harder fight than they expected. Last week, Putin um, sent out a call to Syrian fighters to come over and help to come over and help Russian forces. Um, but now, according to three U.S. officials and reports in The Washington Post, U.S. officials say that the Kremlin has turned to its communist ally, China, and asking for military and financial help. Uh, but Jake Sullivan, as I said, is on his way to Rome to meet with his Chinese counterpart. He is warning of consequences for any country that tries to bail Russia out. How's this playing at home uh, with uh, the, the American people? Uh, you know, to, I, I know you've mentioned in the past it's always uh, helpful, I guess, for these guys to get off the hill every now and then and go see what you know what's going on, what's playing on Main Street uh, in their hometowns, because there's a price to pay, as, as you guys have been reporting on Global for the last little while. Uh, it's one thing to say we're going to do everything we possibly can for Ukraine, and that's I think where everybody's mindset is these days. But then you get in the car and go and try to fill up your gas tank and you see what's going on there. And uh, people get pretty ticked off pretty easily when they see that sort of stuff. Is there a concern in Washington right now that there could be some pushback on this now? I mean, there's definitely pushback and people are very upset. I mean, gas is at its highest level ever. And, and you know, it just costs you a ton to, to fuel up. It's, you know, uh, plane tickets have gone through the roof because jet fuel prices are skyrocketing. But I, there's also a lot, if you go on social media, people are like, stop whining about, you know, your gas prices because people are dying in Ukraine. But, I mean, the reality is that it does hurt people, particularly, you know, like in our area where people have to commute for, you know, an hour and a half a day just to get to work. You know, it, it does hurt you in the pocketbook, and it's definitely going to hurt a lot of Americans. And, and there's not a great solution for that because as we don't buy Russian oil and the UK has announced it's, you know, it's going to stop slowly trickling down to stop buying Russian oil by the end of the year. You know, it's supply and demand. The price is going up across the globe. And so the price goes up and then the price goes up at the at the pump and nobody wins. And OPEC isn't going to produce more oil because they got burned during the COVID pandemic. They produced a ton of oil. It didn't sell. Nobody was commuting. So, you know, it, it's not a it's not a situation that's going to end anytime soon. We're talking about months and months of very high gas prices here in the U.S. The support that, uh, that the president's getting right now in Congress for this is, is, I know there are some hawks. We mentioned John Bolton a few minutes ago, and there's a couple of, of uh, congressmen uh, that have been very vocal in opposition to this. Uh, but, I mean, on Stephan Offlis' show on ABC on Sunday morning, I mean, Mark Rubio was on there. He's, uh, of course, a Republican, vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, basically defending the decision uh, for the no-fly zone, and he was pretty candid about it. He says people don't understand it. He says it's a catchphrase that people think, hey, that's great. But if you're going to ins institute, as, as Rubio said, if you're going to institute a no-fly zone, you have to be ready to defend it. In other words, if a Russian jet goes in there, you've got to shoot it down. Uh, and that's right. an act of war. And, and, and so, you know, people that think you can do both, like Bolton, uh, Rubio defending uh, Biden in front of Har the, the Hawks there, that's a picture you don't think you're going to see, but there's some pretty strong voices from the Republican side. Even Lindsey Graham, I guess, is, is being supportive so far anyway. Well, kind of. <laughs> he was on Fox News yeah. the other day, blasting him, calling him incompetent, calling the president incompetent. But you bring up a good point. So this is what happens. You declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine. 
and a Russian fighter jet goes in and, and drops a bomb, bomb on Kiev. A NATO jet then has to defend it. So it goes up and then it tries to attack the Russian jet. So then what the Russian jet does is turn around and attack, let's say, the neighboring NATO country, say Poland. And then you've started a war in Europe. And, and that's uh, the, the rationalization, I guess, that Biden's using in situations like this. The supply chain is another issue, though, that Biden talked about. Uh, and, of course, Putin has already targeted and say, uh, we're going to have to do something about that. As, as a fact, as you guys were reporting from Washington the, last week, there was intelligence, U.S. intelligence, that the Russians were already planning a, a, a run at the supply chain. I don't know exactly what that would entail. I would imagine it's the supply chain on the Ukraine side of, of that Poland-Ukraine border. We don't know exactly, but uh, there were some efforts, I guess, uh, to try to circumvent that. Uh, is the, the realization starting to settle in in Washington that this is, is going to be a long haul? This is not going to get resolved? This is not going to get resolved anytime soon. And let's be clear, um, Russia bombed a military supply chain operation right next to the Poland border um, Sunday morning, I believe it was. And so very, very close to Poland. And, and people in Poland are very nervous about what's going on, that this will trickle over and bombs will miss and bombs are going to hit um, the border, if not into Poland. And so, um, you know, Poland Poland has really had a, has a mess on its hand. There's been 2.7, 2.8 refugees that have fled Ukrainian. 1.6 million are in Poland right now. Um, and so they've really taken an, they're taking a terrible economic hit and a humanitarian hit trying to help these people. Um, so, you know, this, this is one of these things where you just have to be very, very careful because Vladimir Putin is very unpredictable. And there's a lot of concern about whether or not he's, if you will, right in the mind and what, what he might do. It's a very volatile situation, very fluid situation, changing almost by the minute uh, as we see things developing, uh, which is why we'll be watching, of course, on Global National uh, to get your updates as to what's happening. Uh, Jennifer, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Hang in there. Jennifer Johnson, of course, Washington correspondent in the nation's capital. That'd be the U.S. nation uh, in Washington, D.C. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.